Okay, well, I'm, I'm doing a, a few uh, one-off sermons, if you like, before I start another series, and I don't know what other series I will start just yet. So, in the meantime, some isolated texts here and there, yet they're all part of the Word of God. And this week, I want to bring you to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, and particularly verse 3. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. This little psalm, only six verses, is a song of liberation. It's rejoicing in freedom. Let's just read it again. When the Lord turned again the captivity, that's not freedom, is it? That's captivity. The captivity of Zion. We were like them that dream. We, we were, wow, wow, what's happening? He's, he's freed us from our captivity. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. And people noticed. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. Look at them, they're rejoicing. The Lord indeed has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Cause us to know that we're no longer in that situation. They that sow in tears, in sorrow, shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed to sow, shall doubtless later come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves, his harvest, his abundance with him. Well, it's a lovely little song, a song of liberation. It's a song about a change of state, from a state of captivity to a state of freedom. Uh, I don't, I've never experienced anything physically like that of having been a captive and released, but I know many, many people have. It's, a, it's an incredible feeling to be a captive and then released from it. Uh, tears to joy, a situation where your heart is broken and there are tears of sorrow to a situation which is filled with joy. From sowing seed in sorrow to reaping a harvest in rejoicing. And it's all because of what the Lord has done for what it says here, great things for us. The Lord has done great things for us. And so I want to ask three questions about that little verse this morning. Who is meant by us? Secondly, what great things has the Lord done for them that are called us? And what is the gladness, this knowledge, this experience produces. Well, first of all, us, unlike what the majority of religion says, you ask the majority that claim to be Christians, even claim to be true Christians, and churches that claim to stand for the truth of God, what the us means, and they will tell you it means everyone that ever lived. But it clearly is not everyone who ever lived. Look in verse 2, there's a distinction made. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord's done great things for them. There's clearly a division, a distinction that is made in the ranks of humanity. There is a people, and from the psalmist's point of view, it's what he calls us. There is a people for whom God has done great things that he hasn't done for the rest. There's a, say, let me say it again. There's a people for whom God has done great things that he hasn't done for the rest. This is a people chosen 
of God. Chosen of God. You know what Ephesians chapter 1 says. We quote it often enough, but don't let the oft familiarity with it lead to complacency about the power of the message. In verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Blessed be our God who hath blessed us, has, has favoured us, has poured out his faith. There's the word again, us, has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's a tremendous thing to have. According. How has he blessed us, Paul? How has it show us? According, in accordance with. He has chosen us in him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The people that are called us in this psalm are those that God has chosen by his own sovereign, gracious choice, for no reason other than that it is God's sovereign, gracious choice. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion and mercy on whom I will have compassion and mercy. God is a God of electing grace. And the world, and especially the religious world, of all sorts, of all flavours, basically, you know, apart from the true gospel of Christ, all other religions are fundamentally the same. They're all about we as we are, making ourselves acceptable to that which we regard as the deity, as the one whom we must meet when we leave this life. But, you, you know, God is a God of electing grace. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. This religious world hates that concept that God, of his own choice, should choose some and should pass by others. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, again, a verse that should resonate in your mind we are bound to give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, for God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. What? Not when I made a decision. No, God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctif sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The only way I know that you are the elect of God is because you believe the gospel of truth. The gospel of God, not the gospel of religious man, not the gospel that man has decided is a more acceptable gospel. No. You know, if in these days in which we live, things are degenerating at such a rate. Even those that used to stand, and I'm not going to name names at this point, but even those that used to stand as pillars of the truth in this country of ours, and now, I've had evidence of it this week, and as I say, I won't go into detail, but a once respected evangelical reformed organisation asked a colleague of mine whether the writings of his father could be changed to suit the way people think about doctrine in our day. And he said, absolutely no way. I'm glad to tell you that they've backed off. No, the us is the people of God. It is the Israel of God. As Galatians 6 verse 16 says, the Israel of God 
are all of those who are the true children of Abraham. What? By descent, the Jews, the people that live in Israel in this modern day of political turmoil? No, not at all. The spiritual Israel of God. The spiritual children of God. What makes someone a spiritual child of Abraham? Answer, according to the scripture, they, they have the same faith that Abraham had. And as Abraham believed God, they believed God. And as Abraham had his faith, what was his faith? It wasn't his faith as a work that was counted to him to righteousness, for righteousness. It was what he believed in that was counted to him for righteousness. And what we believe in is the Lord Jesus Christ dying for his people and paying his people's sin debt that is counted to his people for righteousness. It's the faith of Jesus Christ that saves his people from their sins. This is true spiritual Zion, the us that he's speaking about. The Lord hath done great things for us. It's the true spiritual Zion. Well, who are they then? How many of them are there? It's a multitude that no man can number that are destined for eternal glory. If you were to go to Revelation 7, as we did a few weeks, months ago, Revelation 7 verse 9 then says, Looking in heaven, John beheld, and I saw a multitude that no man can number, an innumerable multitude, a multi-ethnic multitude of every tribe and tongue and kindred, all there, all of one accord, praising God for the glory of his grace in saving them from their sins. In Revelation 19 and verse 1, John beholds again in another vision, and I saw, he says, much people in heaven. This is the us of which this verse speaks. There are people who, according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, the Lord speaks by Jeremiah, and he says in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, an unchanging love, a love that's never altered as time passes. You know, as we go through life, our emotions, our experiences, our ups and downs, things are constantly changing. Not with God. I change not, says God. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, a love that is always the same. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. God draws his people whom he loved. Why did he love them? Just because he loved them. Just because he, as God, sovereignly chose. We'll never know. But he chose to love this people. A multitude predestinated by grace to be conformed to the image of God's Son. This is God's unmerited choice to, as we read in Ephesians, the adoption of children to be called the children of God, the sons of God, to be conformed, as Romans 8, 29 says, to be conformed to the image of his son, because he makes this people, this us, joint heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ is the heir of, the inheritor of, he has made his people the inheritors of. You protest, religious folk protest, well, that's just grossly unfair, isn't it? Isn't that grossly unfair? Turn to Romans chapter 9. Over in Romans chapter 9. And um, in verse 14, having talked about, uh, having quoted the scripture from Malachi 
Um, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Then in verse 14, what shall we say then? You know, it's just said that one guy is loved by God and his twin brother is hated by God, is what that verse says. What? Are you, are you, we need to change this Bible. This Bible doesn't seem right to me. This is what people say. We need to change this doctrine. This doctrine doesn't seem right to us. We, we can't have people in our modern world reading that and, and coming to terrible conclusions about our religion because of what it says there. What shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? That sounds so unfair. That sounds so unjust. God forbid. Perish the thought. Absolutely not. The God of all the earth shall do right, said Abraham. Surely, surely the God of all the earth shall do right in his judgment on sin. He says to Moses, uh, uh, no, we won't go on there just at the moment, just at the minute. Uh, but look down at verse 18. That's what, that's what I wanted to say. In Romans 9, verse 18. Therefore, God, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's his choice. It's his entirely, his sovereign choice. And whom he will, he hardeneth. You say, that's not fair. It's God's will. Thou wilt say unto me, why doth he yet find fault? You know, you know, who, who's, if he's made one like this and you can't resist his will, why, why does he find one fault with the one that uh, he, he made that way? Nay, but O oh man, who art thou? That repliest against God. Who are you that brings charges against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Our modern day seems so much to say that sort of thing in the face of God. Why have you made me like this? And then he says, Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, the same lump of clay, to make one vessel, one cup? unto honour, your posh china, and another unto dishonour, just the rough old mug that you drink your tea out of in the garden. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, us, there it is again, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, the Israel of God, the people chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, called in time, quickened by the Holy Spirit, made to know the truth of God. This is the us of which the psalmist speaks. Now, these are very high doctrines, aren't they? The doctrines of predestination, of sovereign grace, of election, of, uh, you know, all, all, all the Calvinistic doctrines that are summarised in that, uh, that word tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, um, uh, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. These are high doctrines, and they're all very scripturally based. You can't argue with them. They, they are scripturally based. Have you grasped them? Have you grasped them? It's very important that we're right on our doctrine. It's very important that we know true, right doctrine. Have you grasped these doctrines? 
If you say yes, I would say so have many other religious folk. You know, as Jesus said, he said, um, you, you, you say that you believe, the devils also believe and they tremble. It's one thing to believe, but what effect does it have? Many other religious folk are very precise on their doctrine, but they're not amongst the us for whom the Lord has done great things. Many of them will find themselves among that number who will say to the Lord in the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name and for your sake? Surely you must take us into heaven because of what we've done. And he will say unto them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who work iniquity. It isn't mentally assenting, agreeing to high doctrine that confirms one as among the us destined for heavenly bliss. You will never attain to the paradise of God if you haven't been brought to feel in this life your ruined condition as you are. It's not what you know of doctrine, it's what you know of your sinnerhood what you are as a ruined sinner, what your sin has done to separate you from God, how your sin is, as it's often pictured in Scripture, spiritual leprosy, which is an incurable disease. If you've never felt that on earth, you will never attain to the paradise of God in heaven. If you've never felt, and don't worry, I'm not saying that there's a certain degree of it to be attained but to some degree to some conscious degree you must know that you are a sinner you are ruined as you are that you are incapable of having or doing anything that the Lord can look upon and say ah because of this I will count this one better than others Jesus said I put it in a little article in the bulletin they complained about Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious folks, said um, he, can't, he can't be a true prophet because look at him. He cavorts and eats with sinners. Look at that. He, he, uh, he spends his time with, with tax collectors who were regarded as the most corrupt, evil, deceitful, deceptive, twisting people going. Uh, with, with, with the prostitutes and all, he, he cavorts with them. How can he be a holy man? We can't listen to what he said. And Jesus replied and said to them, they that be whole, they that be well, they that have no illness, don't need a doctor, a physician. But they that are sick know that they need a doctor. They that have a sickness know that they need a doctor. What is the sickness that we need to be shown that we have to be confirmed as members of this us? It's that sickness of sin. Have you felt your sin sickness? This psalm, this song of liberty from captivity, in this psalm, God's spirit brings a soul to feel their true captivity under the law, under the righteous standard of God, that I'm subject to it and yet I cannot keep it and I cannot attain to it. And I'm in a captive state because of that, because I cannot do the things that God requires of me to do that he might accept me in his kingdom and in his heaven. And I'm in that captive state, and yet God's Spirit brings his people, the us, to feel that true captivity so that he might show them the release. We can know all about election. We can know all the doctrines of predestination, of justification from eternity, but we must be brought 
to feel captivity to sin and Satan under God's law, to to know that we must either keep it perfectly, continuously, unceasingly, or be justly condemned by it. It's well pictured in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian is weighed down. He's in Vanity Fair and he has a family going about their Vanity Fair business all the time. But he is convicted of a burden on his back, a burden of sin. And he's weighed down by that burden. And they ridicule him for it. And they tell him to pull himself together and not be so silly and just to get on with life and enjoy it. But he couldn't get rid of it. Why? It was the Holy Spirit. A sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. He made him conscious of the sin burden that would keep him from heaven. It made him conscious that whilst that sin burden was there and he was responsible for it, God can only justly condemn him to an eternal separation from him in hell. Bunyan was like that. Pilgrim was like that in Pilgrim's Progress until he found the one thing that is sufficient to remove that burden. And you know where he found that, at the cross of Calvary, as he looked on the Lord Jesus Christ, dying there for him. A sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Ghost has made him so. I think this is one of the most important things that is often overlooked. This is, this is such a qualification to be part of this number, this people, this us for whom the Lord has done great things. So then, let's look for a little while at some of the great things that God has done for us, the Lord has done for us. Firstly, I would say what God does for his people is, for us, is he gives a true knowledge of God. So many have ideas about God, but not a true knowledge of God, not the truth of God revealed in their souls. In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, the chapter of faith, it says, He that cometh to God must believe that he is. Sounds very simple, that, doesn't it? We must have a sense of the being and presence and nature of God and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Oh, that you would show yourself to me, Christ the sinner, that you would show me your glory. You see, by nature... We walk in spiritual darkness. The the people that walked in darkness, says Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. What's the light? God shines his light. God, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God, who in the beginning said, let there be light. God, who shined light into creation, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. You see, there's more than the witness of creation all around that speaks that there is a God, a holy God, an omnipotent God. This is an inner sense of the being of God. That there is this glorious being who is God, who made me, who sustains me, who gives me life, who gives me my next breath, who upholds all the laws of nature, who is holy, who is perfectly just and righteous, who is great and omnipotent, who speaks and a universe comes into being. 
is not sat on the sidelines, impotent to do anything as the great forces of nature take their, take, take their course. No, he is the one who caused it all. And it brings a sense of true fear. I'm not talking about a, a, a terror of judgment at this stage. I'm talking about a fear of this one, a reverence of this one, and a, a sense of awe as to who this God is. You know, the fear of the Lord, this sense of who God is, and that I am tiny and God is immense and fills the universe. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you would know anything, it's the beginning of knowledge of life. In life, you have friends, you have colleagues, you have family members who do not have this sense of God, the true knowledge of God. They might ridicule you for it. They might do. Some might even respect you and admire you for it and say, oh, well, you've got your great faith. That's very nice for you, isn't it, that you've got your faith? But without it, you're not even on the path to true life, the life that Jesus called abundant life. I, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. It's not just the knowledge that God is, but who he is in his triune persons, the Trinity, saving us, us, his people, from just condemnation. It's this awareness of God who, this is what he's done for us, he's made us aware of him, that the Father has chosen his people in electing grace. Isaiah 55 verse 3, Incline your ear and come unto me, hear and your soul shall live. This is God speaking to us. Hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. This is the covenant of grace made between the persons of the Godhead for the benefit of those that he has loved with an everlasting love. It's what David experienced and in his dying days in Second Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. David's talking about it. It says in verse 1, these are, these are the last words of David, David the son of Jesse. And then in verse 5, although my house be not so with God, about all the blessings from God, my house be not so with God. Why was your house not so with God, David? Because David had sinned and the consequences of that sin came down on his house for generations. And uh, his sons fought and there was murder and all sorts of terrible things went on. My house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Has the Lord God made with you an everlasting covenant? Has he shown you that covenant of determination to save you from your sins? Ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation. What's all your salvation? Your good works, David? No, the covenant that God himself, the persons of the Godhead, has done. And this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow in amongst his family, that, that, that is. So David was that man after God's own heart. Yet in flesh, David, we know, was a great sinner. He committed terrible sins. But God saw all the effects of sin on not just David, but the multitude he loved. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, he made complete provision for that sin 
for that separation from God. He came, he divinely undertook to come and to procure and confirm the release of his people, our release from sin's captivity, where Satan in the fall had made us unqualified for God's kingdom, God in the gospel has justly qualified us for his kingdom, justly done it. He hasn't swept the sin under the carpet. He's dealt with it. He's paid for it. He's removed it so that it's taken away, so that his people are the righteousness of God in him and thereby qualified for heaven. He sent his son who willingly came to die the death of, demand, uh, of justice, demanded for our sins. And he sent him to die for the sins of the people he loved and them alone. It's gross error to say that he sent him to die for everybody and then whoever wants to choose it and have it for themselves, that's their, that's their, that's their lookout, that's their benefit. No, he came and he died for the sins of his people and them alone. He's Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Emmanuel, who is God with us, the eternal Son of God, sharing the glory of God, laid that glory aside to come down to this earth to bleed the blood of God. I'm choosing my words carefully. Why did he bleed the blood of God? To purchase the freedom from captivity of his church, of his bride, of us, of his people, of his elect. How do I know that? Acts chapter 20, verse 28. I often quote it. Paul, to the elders of the Ephesian church on the beach at Miletus, told them to take care of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I'm not making it up. It's there in the scripture. How is it the blood of God? It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself, who is spirit, does not have blood. God himself, who is spirit, cannot die. But he became man, who has both blood and can die, that he might shed his blood as the payment of the sins of his people. Jesus his name means saviour. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, the saviour of his people, is holy, harmless, undefiled, without sin, but made sin. And where animal sacrifices only symbolised the forgiveness of sin, the payment for sin, he said, and we read it earlier, it's quoting Psalm 40, verse 7. Stephen read it for us in Hebrews 10, verses 7, and then again in verse 9. Lo, I come. The animal sacrifices weren't just pictures. They weren't enough to effect the forgiveness of sins. And so he, the Son of God, said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will. Lo, I come. A body hast thou prepared for me. It says elsewhere in Hebrews. A body has been prepared. Lo, I come in a body which can shed blood and can die. Uh, the God-man, God perfectly contracted to a span that he might be judged under the law for the sins of his people and pay its penalty. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, to do the will of the Father, the will of God. What is the will of God? John 6, 39. They asked him, what is the will of God? He said, this is the Father's will, which hath sent me. Oh, right, 
So we don't, we don't need some theological school to tell us. It's here in our Bibles. This is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me. All what? All the people. Of all the people. Which people? The people he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. He gave them to Christ. Why? As a bride. As a bride for his son. The bride of Christ. There's going to be a marriage in heaven of Christ and his bride. That of all those that constitute the bride of Christ, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Not one of them will be lost to Satan and to hell, but should raise it up again at the last day. It will be there with me in heaven. All the hell our sins merited was poured into his soul. The Lord hath done great things for us. He's done great things for us. All the hell our sins merited was poured into his soul. He, the infinite God, made man, made human, came to pay the debt of our sin. As Peter says, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive by the Spirit. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But he came and shed his blood, that our sins might be remitted. This is the supreme of all great things that he, the Lord, has done for us. He's done, done, completed, finished, ended. There's no chance of uh, doubt about this. There are no ifs and there are no buts. God unified us this people that he's talking about here, and Christ in divine justice before time, so that, so that in time, as Jesus said a couple of verses earlier than the one we quoted just before in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me, all this people that the Father has given to him, what? Shall come to me. They shall come. All of them. What, you mean, what, what if they decide not to? No, they all shall come. And whosoever comes, I will in no wise cast out, he said. They're accepted. We, us, we're accepted if we believe in him. We're accepted. We're made sinless in him. We're made the righteousness of God in him before God's justice. Hebrews 9 verse 26 says this, But now once, in the end of the world, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 24 I quote it again he came to finish transgression to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness it's not only the father's electing grace and his sustaining power of Christ as he came as he came down to this earth to fulfill the father's will and it's the son's willing submission to accomplish everything, which was the joy that was set before him. But it's also the Holy Spirit's regenerating power to bring us to the knowledge of this truth, to the experience of this salvation, to the life of God, to communion with God. So sinners are made willing it says in Psalm 110, verse 3, and this is the Holy Spirit's work, this covenant of grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the Holy Spirit's work, that his people are made willing in the day of his power. 
So Jesus is walking on the road into Jericho and there's Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the, the uh, deceitful tax collector, the, the fraudulent tax collector, the, the man of short stature uh, who went up into a tree with thick with leaves that he might just be nosy and observe who is this one that they're all talking about. And when the Holy Spirit came to him as Jesus walked by and Jesus looked up into that tree, Zacchaeus knew his name. Zacchaeus, you come down. You must come down from that tree. And today salvation came to that house. The Philippian jailer uh, in, in Philippi, holding Paul and Silas in pain from their uh, beatings that they'd had, in the stocks, in the jail at night. The Philippian jailer must be brought to cry, what must I do to be saved? Mary Magdalene, the woman of ill repute, must be brought to the feet of Jesus to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Saul of Tarsus, breathing fury and venom against the church of God and against the followers of this imposter, Jesus, as he thought. On the Damascus road, the light shone and Paul is brought to his knees. Saul is brought to his knees to cry out, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you persecute. Immediately, immediately, all of the resistance and opposition is gone. Lord, what would you have me to do? And you know about the rest. The Spirit of God brings all our efforts and our hopes in our personal improvement to absolutely nothing. He strips us bare. He brings us to take hold of Christ. He gives us repentance over sin, sorrow, true sorrow over sin, seeing what it has done, seeing how it offends God, seeing what it caused for God to save us from that sin in sending his son to the cross. Faith eyes of the soul to see the truth of God, a willingness to serve God. Are these not all great things that God has done for us who believe him? Has he done them for you? Has he done great things for you in saving your soul? Oh, the blessing of being able to say with Paul, as he did in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul said this, and the us, the us of this verse 3, are able to say this, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded, convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. What have I committed unto him? The eternal well-being of this soul of mine. I've committed unto him and he is able to do it and to save it and to take us to be with him through that day of judgment. Therefore, the Lord hath done great things for us whereof we are glad. The heathen, in verse 2, may indifferently observe the liberty rejoicing of God's blessed people. The heathen looked and said, the Lord's done great things for them. They may indifferently observe it. But this is a key mark of being actual beneficiaries of God's grace. And I'll close just by reminding you, Philippians 3 verse 3, us, we are the true circumcision. We are the true Israel of God. We are that true Israel of God who what? Worship God in the spirit. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, they who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. We worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. He has done great things for us whereof we are glad. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. All our hope is in him.
and we have no confidence in the flesh. What is your qualification for heaven? As Happy Jack said, I'm a poor sinner and nothing at all because the Holy Spirit's taught me that. But Jesus Christ is my all in all. Amen. Mm-hmm.